Good morning. In today's headlines, tragedy strikes in Pennsylvania as flash floods sweep away cars, killing at least five. Two very young children are also missing. Former President Trump suggests his potential running mate could be among his opponents, and he's still not committing to a primary debate. We have some takeaways from Trump's weekend event and interview. Accusations fly after an attack on the Crimea Bridge. Two parents are dead and their daughter hospitalized with injuries. A new California bill treats gay couples' inability to conceive children as infertility. Entity speaks with a California attorney. A new bank rate report ranks the top 50 cities to launch a career. Young professionals increasingly consider cost of living, work-life balance, and remote work. And a Florida neighborhood is experiencing an unusually furry invasion after dozens of rabbits take to the streets. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Today is Monday, July 17th. Flooding struck multiple states over the weekend, turning deadly in Pennsylvania. At least five people were swept away and killed there by a flash flood on Saturday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the extreme weather. Rescuers are still searching for a nine-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister. Their mother has already been found dead. Authorities say the children were visiting from Charleston, South Carolina with their family. They were all headed to a barbecue when the flash flood struck. The father and grandmother made it to safety with a four-year-old. The mother swept away with the two younger children by floodwaters. The power of the flooding in Pennsylvania is evident here. Roads can be seen ripped apart as if made from paper. Cars tossed about like toy rowboats, with one reportedly found a mile and a half from where a flash flood whisked it off. Flooding struck throughout the Northeast, including Connecticut. Firefighters in Bristol rescued at least half a dozen people there from floodwaters on Sunday. They warn drivers it's a big mistake if you see standing water on a road and think you can make it across. This shot from an emergency vehicle shows the extremely flooded streets they were forced to navigate to rescue those in need. This house stands in the line of fire, of water determined to wash out anything in its path. Concrete, asphalt, and metal turn out to be no match for the relentless push of water. Road crews have their work cut out for them in the coming months. Over in New Hampshire, water demonstrated it always finds a way as excessive rains give birth to new mountainside creeks. The weekend storms also wreaked havoc on air travel. Over 1,000 flights were canceled due to storm Sunday. Hundreds of flights were also delayed. New Jersey's Newark Liberty International had the most cancellations, with more than 300 on Sunday while New York's John F. Kennedy Airport and LaGuardia Airport were also hit hard. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says the rain has seemed unrelenting this year. As songwriter Annie Lennox would say, here comes the rain again, New Yorkers, here comes the rain. Hochul added that more extreme weather events could be the new normal. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Severe weather continues to plague the U.S. today. Flood conditions are pushing farther northeast, including through New Hampshire and Vermont. In the north, tens of millions of Americans face air quality alerts, and extreme heat is the concern in much of the west and south. 
Police in Georgia shot and killed a man in an exchange of gunfire yesterday. The suspect was wanted in four weekend killings near Atlanta. Officials say Andre Longmore was shot during an intense manhunt. A sheriff's deputy and two police officers were wounded while trying to take him into custody. Police say he ran away after exchanging gunfire. He was found hiding in the backyard of a townhouse where another shootout followed. Longmore was wanted after Saturday morning shootings in Hampton, Georgia. Four people were shot and killed in a 10-minute span. His motives are unclear. The pursuit began when a sheriff's deputy spotted a stolen SUV belonging to one of the victims. All three officers are expected to recover. And a man has been charged with the murders of three women that took place more than a decade ago. The victims' bodies were found near a Long Island, New York beach. The charges were made public on Friday. Here are the details. More than a decade after 11 bodies were found near a Long Island beach in serial killings which gripped the United States, a suspect has been named, arrested and charged with murder. Officers in forensic suits were seen at the home of Rex Hewerman, a 59-year-old architect who was arrested on Thursday. He faces first- and second-degree murder charges for the deaths of three women. He's under investigation for the murder of a fourth, whose disappearance and death resembled the others. Hewerman lived in Massapequa Park, a 20-minute drive from Gilgo Beach, 40 miles east of New York City where bodies of nine women, one man and a toddler girl were found in 2010 and 2011. Police say at least five of the Gilgo Beach victims were identified as missing prostitutes who had advertised for clients online. Some of the bodies were bound with belts or tape before wrapped in burlap, according to a bail application Friday. This case is not over, it's only beginning. Suffolk County District Attorney Raymond Turney said detectives used DNA evidence to link Hewerman, including swabbing leftover pizza crusts agents saw Hewerman throw away after eating. Investigators also traced a Chevy truck seen at the time of the murders to Hewerman, and there were other clues. For each of the murders, he got an individual burner phone, and he used that to communicate with the victims. We followed his use of burner phones. We were able to uh, identify seven separate burner phones that he used. Hewerman pleaded not guilty to his charges. If convicted, he faces multiple sentences of life in prison without parole. But even with Hewerman in custody, police say there's more work ahead in probing other murders linked to Gilgo Beach. The cousin of one of the victims spoke to the press on Friday. What does full justice look like for you? What are you hoping for? Full justice is all the cases being closed. Looking now to politics, former President Trump says his pick for vice president could be one of his primary opponents. And he says he hasn't decided if he'll participate in the first Republican debate. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Former President Trump spoke at the Turning Point Action event on Saturday. The presidential candidate told the crowd 2024 would be the most important election of their lifetimes. The election will decide whether your generation inherits a fascist country or a free country, whether you will have a rule of tyrants or the rule of law, whether Marxist radicals burn our civilization to the ground, which they're looking to do, or young patriots like you propel America to glorious new heights greater than ever before. Trump spoke about his indictments and the raid at Mar-a-Lago and likened it to election interference. He said he never hit Biden as hard as he could have, but now the gloves can come off. 2024 is our final battle. 
With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers. From our government, we will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, fascists. Trump said in an exclusive interview that aired on Fox News Sunday, he's undecided if he'll take part in the first Republican debate because of his lead in the polls. He praised his Republican opponents and suggested some would make good potential cabinet members or vice president. I think you have some good people on the stage, actually. I think you have some very talented people. I've been impressed by some of them. The former president opened up about mistakes made during his first term in office, mostly around issues from people chosen to fill various roles. A few examples were nominating Bill Barr as attorney general and Christopher Wray as FBI director. Trump is easily leading the packed GOP 2024 field by a wide margin in most polls. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. On to education. $39 billion in student debt is set to be canceled in the coming weeks, benefiting over 800,000 borrowers. The Biden administration's announcement on Friday applies to people who are in one of four different student loan repayment plans. The plans base payments on a borrower's income and family size, regardless of their total outstanding debt. After reaching a set forgiveness threshold of 20 or 25 years, or after making 240 or 300 monthly payments, a borrower's remaining balance is then wiped out. The administration says inaccurate counting of payments has resulted in borrowers losing progress toward loan forgiveness. The administration says it plans to address these counting errors, resulting in the wiping out of debt. Student loan repayments resume in October after a years-long pause during the pandemic. And just ahead, the Biden administration's climate envoy, John Kerry, arrives in China. Find out what he's expected to talk about with his Chinese counterpart over the next three days. And a parade in New York City on Saturday seeking to bring awareness to the oppression of a spiritual group in China. An onlooker says the beautiful culture being featured alongside the grim tale of persecution is bittersweet. So stay tuned for that story. Welcome back. The Biden administration's climate envoy, John Kerry, arrived in Beijing Sunday. Kerry will meet with his Chinese counterpart, Xia Jinhua, for three days of talks. Discussions are centered on renewing commitments from the U.S. and China to reduce methane emissions. The Chinese Communist Party stopped high-level diplomatic engagement with the U.S. in August last year. That was after Nancy Pelosi, who was House Speaker at the time, visited Taiwan. The CCP claims Taiwan as part of its territory, despite never having ruled the island. President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping agreed at a meeting in November to restart talks between their top officials. But plans changed after the spy balloon incident at the end of January. U.S. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer wants to sanction China over fentanyl. He's pushing for a bipartisan amendment to the upcoming defense bill. Schumer says the amendment would authorize the White House to declare fentanyl trafficking a national emergency and open the door to sanctions. The Senate leader says the bill will be brought to the floor this week and believes it will pass with strong bipartisan support. The International Monetary Fund is now hinting that it will let countries use the Chinese yuan to repay their debts. It comes as the IMF confirmed that Argentina paid off the equivalent of 1.1 billion U.S. dollars using the Chinese currency. 
The IMF spokesperson said the renminbi is one of five currencies that members can and have used to pay their obligations. The payment is part of a 44 billion U.S. dollar loan deal. It comes as Argentina's foreign currency reserves fell sharply because a drought cut grain exports, which are paid for in U.S. dollars, and its peso has weakened under 109 percent annual inflation. And we're joined live by James Gorey, the author of The China Crisis, to help us make some sense of this. Thank you so much for making the time today. James, what are the risks of allowing countries to repay their debt in UN, given that China has been called a currency manipulator? Well, the risk is that the dollar is, is uh, no longer the, the sole reserve currency of the world. It's, it's a, certainly a, a blow to its, its standing, its prestige, uh, and, and sends the message that the, uh, the yuan is, a, is an alternative currency. So what should the United States be doing right now? Um, I don't think that the United States can do much right now in the fact that the U.S. dollar is being replaced um, in certain areas. Lots of, certainly China has made many uh, bilateral currency deals, trade deals, uh, excluding the dollar. Um, the Saudis and OPEC have allowed oil to be sold in yuan, so the petrodollar is no longer the petrodollar. It's more like the petrodollar. That's the bigger story. And so, yeah, the dollar is... Contrary to some people saying, some economists saying that you know the, the dollar can't be replaced, it certainly can. It just won't won't be replaced with uh, the same kind of system that the dollar is part of. So, how significant is this step forward for the Chinese yuan as a global alternative currency? I think it's huge. Um, bear in mind that the BRICS currency is, is going to be announced next month. Um, that may well be a, a gold-backed currency, and BRICS, of course, China is a part of that. So there is a definite move and effort uh, between China, uh, Russia, and many other countries to uh, dethrone and de-dollarize the dollar, the economy. So what should Americans know right now in light of this? Well, they should know that, that when China is making the effort, and other nations are, to dethrone the dollar and de-dollarize the international trade system, uh, it's not just the currency, but it's the actual trade system itself. I mean, China wants to replace the entire financial system with a more China-centric one, not uh, simply replacing the dollar and keeping the same system that the dollar and the U.S. was, 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 was about. So I look, I look at the, the international system as being very, very threatened, and China wants to replace it. There's no way they want to re- keep a, you know, re- re- replace the dollar with the yuan in the current dollar-denominated system. That, uh, that doesn't bode well for them. So now that the IMF has about one billion U.S. dollars worth of yuan in its reserves, how does that impact the fund's ability to provide medium and short-term loans to other countries? Um, I'm not sure it, it matters that much in terms of dollar supplies. Dollars are there's plenty of dollars out there in terms of you know they're they're being printed all over the place. Uh, so and the U.S. will fund the IMF, um, and so I don't look at it as a as a problem with dollars. I just look at it as a a perception and a, a prestige matter. So the IMF using yuan to fund uh, loans, I think more of the same. We're going to see more of the same. Now, when we lo- look at Argentina here, this is the first time that the country used yuan and its currency exchange with China to pay an external organization. It was originally intended to use to be paid for these imports. But what does this say about China-Argentine relations? Oh, China and Argentine relations are, are growing. In fact, uh, China has a as a spaceport, a top secret spaceport uh, from which even the Argentine government has knows little or nothing about, and is, is, is you know, isn't it, it's done as a quid pro quo in exchange for Chinese development. So 
the relationship between China and Argentina and other Latin American countries um, are, is growing. And of course, as you know, the U.S. is the largest member of the IMF with a quota of about $118 billion. So now that the IMF is going to accept UN as part of its currency, what actions should the United States take here in terms of the fund? Well, again, I don't know what kind of actions they could take to, to dissuade the IMF. Um, China has a seat at the IMF. China's building coalitions within the IMF. China's introduced um, kind of alternative uh, intellectual capital within the IMF, different ideas that uh, the IMF uh, has taken on board, or is taking on board, obviously, to some extent at least. So you're looking at a fundamental sea change in, in how the IMF, how the, the global economy is, is, is and will be operating. Well, this is a very important trend to keep an eye on. We're going to keep covering this as it develops. James Gorey, the author of The China Crisis, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. The recent breach of the White House emails through Microsoft shows China's hacker armies are becoming more sophisticated, including in, instead of the crude, loud, smash-and-grab methods used only years ago, they're now focusing on stealth. Entity's Faye Quarter has analysis. China's hackers are becoming more and more sophisticated in their attacks on the U.S. Before, hacks from China would immediately raise loud alarms. Everyone could easily see the hack, as well as the fact China did it. And Americans would then know how to guard against future hacks. The methods were quite crude. But now, China's hacks are stealthy. Hackers hide deep inside computer networks for months or even years, quietly monitoring what's going on and gathering data. One method they use is they avoid hacking the main computers. Instead, they hack peripheral devices, such as printers, routers, or the Internet of Things devices. This could include smart TVs. The malware would be actually loaded into the operating system uh, of, a, of a device. And then the device is activated on the network and then can spread to other devices. Uh, and this is typically how these, these uh, hacks are happening uh, today. Rex Lee is a security advisor at MySmart Privacy. He says that because everything is connected to a network these days, hacking into one item can connect you to every item. The recent attack on Microsoft email accounts, including those of high-profile officials like Gina Raimondo, may have used this method. Experts say it may be the stealthiest attack ever discovered. These attacks worry Americans because they could compromise valuable information. The biggest thing would be critical infrastructure, going after the power grid. All you have to do is take the power grid out and people are pretty much defenseless. Lee has little confidence America can protect itself well. He says that the government's cyber infrastructure is extremely outdated and many organizations don't have the highest encryption standards because those standards may be too expensive. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Speaking of threats from China, it's a solemn time for adherents of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. Over two decades ago, around this time of year, the practice, which is based on the tenets of truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance, came under massive persecution in China. Take a look at how these Falun Gong practitioners in New York spent part of their Saturday. I'm here in Lower Manhattan in Chinatown, where hundreds of Falun Gong practitioners are out here on this hot summer day to bring awareness to the brutal persecution this group faces in China. We spoke to some onlookers, and although this repression has been going on for nearly 24 years, they didn't know and became aware about it because these people are exercising their right to free speech. Other bystanders said the parade is bittersweet. 
the niceness and the beauty of the cultural elements featured in this parade alongside the gruesome facts of detainment, torture, and killing of Falun Gong practitioners because of their faith. A Falun Gong practitioner we spoke to said her mother was very sick, but then after taking up the practice in 1996 in China, she became well, and that's when her whole family started to practice. But then on July 20th, 1999, the ruling Chinese Communist regime launched its persecution against the group. So when I was only nine years old, I still remember uh, several policemen broke into my home in China. Uh, they took my parents away in front of my grandparents who were in their 70s and 80s and uh, took my parents away when I was only nine years old in front of me. I was uh, crying so hard and then they took my parents away and sent them uh, into labor camp and they were there for more than one year. I'm so sorry that happened to you and your parents and how were you able to stay strong after that time? Um, it was very difficult uh, because all the media and everyone, everybody around you, um, you know, they, they will believe in the government. You know, even if you try to tell them about your personal experience, some of them will believe, but some of them wouldn't believe you. So you do feel kind of isolated in an environment like that. The parade showcases rich Chinese culture from the lion dance, look at them go to the influences of Buddhism as seen in the Lotus Float. And of course, the waste drummers, or yaogu in Chinese. A drummer shares with us her experience with the practice. Before I practiced Falun Gong, I had hypothyroidism. I had to be on medication all my life. After practicing Falun Gong for 24 years, I have never taken a single pill. I'm 70 years old. I'm very healthy. Falun Dafa has made my life better. I'm full of hope for my life. I'm grateful to Mr. Li Hongzhi for bringing light and hope to the world. After the persecution of Falun Gong in 1999, we decided to use this traditional Chinese style of drum dance as a means to better spread the truth about the persecution to the Chinese people. The practitioners are calling for an end to the persecution, which includes the state-sanctioned harvesting of organs from practitioners against their will at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. And as you see here, according to the Tweidang Center, many Chinese people have quit the Communist Party and its two affiliated youth groups, about 415 million, whom the Global Service Center calls the hope of China. Banners read, eliminate the CCP, save America. These practitioners are calling on Americans to visit nccp.com and sign the petition. Coming up, tragedy strikes as a family gets caught up in an attack on the Crimean Bridge. Both parents die, their daughter in the hospital. Over 40 people are dead and thousands evacuated in South Korea after days of torrential rain have triggered landslides and severe flooding. More for you after the break. It's good to have you back with us. The Black Sea grain deal is no more. Russia made the announcement today in the wake of the attack on the Crimean Bridge. The deal allowed Ukrainian grain to be exported through the Black Sea. 
The Kremlin said the halting of the Black Sea grain deal had nothing to do with the bridge attack. Russia says the suspension of the deal will continue until its demands to get its own agricultural shipments to the world are met. Russia has complained about restrictions on shipping and insurance hobbling its food and fertilizer exports. Two people were killed and their daughter was wounded today in an attack on the Crimean Bridge. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on what Russia called a terrorist attack by Ukraine. Blasts were reported before dawn on the 12-mile-long road and rail bridge which joins Russia to Crimea. Videos circulating online claim to show the attack in its aftermath but have not been verified. This graphic footage shows the real-world consequences of war. Innocent people traveling along a bridge, perhaps headed for a holiday, caught up in the carnage. An emergency vehicle arrives at the scene, but getting through the mass of cars proves difficult. Here, a policeman communicates with people while directing traffic. This daylight video appears to show the state of the bridge after the attack. Another video shows the damaged bridge stretch from the side and here from above. Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. The bridge serves as a transport route for Russian troops fighting in Ukraine and is a prestige project personally opened by President Vladimir Putin. Russian officials blame Ukraine for what they call a terrorist attack on the bridge, while Ukraine says the attack could be some kind of provocation by Russia itself on the same day that Putin must decide whether or not to extend a U.N. broker deal that allows the export of grain via the Black Sea. But three Ukrainian media outlets say Ukraine was behind the attack using seaborne drones. Russia blamed Ukraine for an attack on the bridge last October, saying it was organized by Ukrainian military intelligence. Ukraine indirectly admitted to the attack months later. The Crimean Peninsula has long been a cherished vacation destination for Russians, especially after Moscow launched its invasion on Ukraine in 2022, and traveling to the west became much more difficult for Russians. In recent weeks, traffic jams to the entrance of the bridge went for miles on a daily basis as Russians went on holiday. The wounded girl, now an orphan, was being treated in intensive care. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And now some short headlines from around the world. More than 300 firefighters were working yesterday to control a wildfire on the Canary Island of La Palma. It's burned over 11,000 acres and forced the evacuation of around 4,000 people. The Spanish island off the coast of Western Africa has suffered high temperatures similar to those seen in Southern Europe. The most destructive storm to hit South Korea this year caused landslides and flooding, leaving at least 40 people dead and over 30 injured. More than 10,000 people were evacuated from their homes since July 9th when heavy rain started pounding the country. Hundreds of rescue workers continued to search for survivors in a muddy tunnel where a flash flood trapped about 15 vehicles. The U.K. has formally joined a vast free trade area spanning the Indo-Pacific region. The government says it will be a big boost for British businesses. Business Secretary Kemi Badenoch yesterday signed the accession protocol to the bloc. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was discharged from the hospital yesterday. That was after being admitted for dehydration on Saturday. Doctors say he is in good health. He had a heart monitor implanted. 
Meta will be fined over $100,000 per day over privacy breaches until it takes remedial action. Norway's Data Protection Authority said the harvesting of user data in Norway to target advertising at them is illegal. The practice is called behavioral advertising. The move could have wider European implications. Almost 200 migrants were found in the southern Mexican state of Veracruz on Friday. Local authorities say the migrants were found stacked up in a tractor trailer. Footage released by the Migration National Institute shows officials and officers climbing the vehicle and releasing the migrants. Among the rescued were five Guatemalans, five Indians, as well as nearly two dozen unaccompanied children and teenagers. Those rescued were put in the National System for Integral Family Development Custody. No arrests were made. Just ahead, a new California bill treats gay couples' inability to conceive children as infertility. Entity speaks with a California attorney. Lead is allegedly leaching into drinking water across the U.S. It's said to be coming from old telephone cables. We hear from an expert on what can be done about it after the break. Hello again. California is in the spotlight with a new bill. It would treat gay or lesbian couples' inability to have children as infertility and force insurance companies to cover assisted pregnancy costs. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with California attorney Susan Swift about Senate Bill 729. Can you tell me the main idea behind SB 729? It's trying to advance the notion of fertility equity. If you are... Um a person who is a gay or lesbian, and you claim that you're infertile because you don't want to have heterosexual sex, then you're going to be entitled to artificial reproductive therapy at the expense of your employer's insurance simply because you're infertile because you can't get pregnant with another man or another woman. The bill would prohibit employer insurance plans from discriminating based on the status of the couple or individual who's infertile, status also meaning sexual orientation. It's going against the common sense that says, well, a man and a woman create babies. That, that's how it's normally done. And to, to redefine what infertility is based on a, a coupling of a man and a man or a woman and a woman does not make biological sense. And, and forcing, forcing private companies, insurance companies to cover it, um, just shifts the burden from the state. The state gets to virtue signal and pass a lovely bill and then put the cost of all of this onto the private sector. Is it too much of a political hot potato for companies in California to fight or are they fighting it? I believe they are. I think that there are insurance companies who are probably trying to say this is going to cost us you know, millions and millions and this isn't a good idea. That's going to cost a lot of money because it's really hard for two men to get pregnant. You, you, if two men can't make a baby, I, I, you just and two women alone can't make a baby. It just doesn't work like that. It's, it's called biology. It's inconvenient. But the, the, the California legislature is going to solve the issue of biology with SB 729. Swift looks askance at a bill supporting artificial pregnancy in this manner as abortion access and funding in California continue to expand. Why don't you just adopt? How about, how about we make sure that the cost of adoption is covered for, for people who are infertile, for gays and lesbians who are infertile? 
California mom Ali Snyder testified in opposition to the bill. No one has the right to buy a baby. Under SB 729, everyone will be considered infertile and eligible for surrogacy. Bill co-author State Senator Carolyn Menhivar disagrees. She feels all those trying to have a family should be treated the same, regardless of sexual orientation. On the bill, she said, it will ensure that queer couples no longer face higher out-of-pocket expenses in building their families compared to non-queer families. The bill is essential for achieving full equality for all Californians. The bill has passed the State Senate and the Assembly Health Committee. It now moves to appropriations. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Turning now to a major diesel fuel spill in the Tennessee River after a tugboat sank on Friday. The Florence, Alabama Police Department announced yesterday the boat began releasing three to 5,000 gallons of diesel into the water. The announcement was said that the fuel was washing up on the beaches of a local park. In response, police asked people yesterday to get out of the water and to stay off beaches until further notice. A local official told CNN that no one was aboard the tugboat when it sank, and it's unclear what caused it to go down. The official said booms were set up around the tugboat itself to contain the spill. Cleanup operations and work to raise the boat were halted at dusk last night and scheduled to resume this morning. A crane will be used to raise the tugboat from the river. Lead coming from old phone cables is apparently contaminating the environment across the United States. That includes the drinking water. This, according to an investigation by the Wall Street Journal, they took samples from 300 cable sites ranging from Oregon to the Tesh Bayou in Louisiana. We bring in an environmental expert to explain how this affects us and whether the current regulations are enough. Please welcome Dr. David Carpenter, the director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the University at Albany. Dr. Carpenter, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure. Thank you. Can you walk us through the step-by-step process by which lead finds its way into the ground and the soil and the water around these cables? Well, lead is a metal, so it never goes away. Uh, And these cables were shielded with a layer of lead on the outside. Remember lead poisoning, Flint, Michigan? Uh, Lead dissolves in water. And... uh, slowly over time, but it doesn't always stay as an intact metal. Lead pipes for drinking water is known to be dangerous because lead leaches from the the metal part and gets into the drinking water. Well, here we have all of these old lead-encased cables, many of them in a, a body of water, Others uh, on the ground where they're going to be exposed to just rainwater and flooding and all of that sort of thing. Uh, And they're going to escape. They can escape into the soil. They can escape into the groundwater, into the drinking water. And however they get out from the metal itself, they pose a significant health effect to people. Absolutely. And the Wall Street Journal even found that when they sent these samples in, that this lead was leachable. AT&T did respond to this. It said that it doesn't think that these lead-sheathed cables pose a risk to public health. And it said that they've managed those kinds of cables for decades in compliance with the applicable laws and regulations. So what do you make of this? I think if that's true, that the applicable laws and regulations are faulty and insufficient to protect public health. 
lead is dangerous to every person, and it's dangerous when it escapes into the environment. Lead reduces IQ, it causes anemia, it causes high blood pressure. Uh, the IQ effects are the most dangerous because it particularly affects children. Children playing around ground that has lead in it, get it in their mouths, and they're harmed for the rest of their life because of their exposure to lead. Well, yes, and in Biotech, where they did some of these sampling, they found that one of their 12 samples actually exceeded the EPA regulations for areas where children play. So what do you think needs to be done here going forward? Well, I think there needs to be a removal of all of these lead-encased lead cables. They need to be gotten out of the environment. Uh, you know, they, first of all, it's, it's causing trash. They're not being used. They're from a d different day and age. Uh, but they've never been recycled, and that's what needs to take place. And Dr. Carpenter, very briefly, who do you think should pay for that? I think it should be paid for by the companies that made and, and left these cables in the environment. They're not any longer used. They're trash, and they should be removed by the people that put them there. Well, thank you so much for your analysis on this, Dr. David Carpenter, Director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the University of Albany. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. A lighter note coming up. Inter-Miami is bracing itself for the arrival of its latest Major League Soccer star. A new bank rate report ranks the top 50 cities to launch a career. Find out which cities took the top spots for young professionals and why when we come back. Welcome back. Soccer legend Lionel Messi is getting ready to play for Inter Miami. The Argentinian was cheered on by a huge crowd of fans despite pouring rain in a packed Fort Lauderdale stadium yesterday where he was welcomed as the new face of Major League Soccer. Messi, who seven months ago led Argentina to World Cup victory in Qatar, was presented to fans during a glitzy event called the Unveil at Miami's home stadium. After the introduction, he was presented with his number 10 shirt before addressing the crowd with a few brief remarks. The soccer star expressed his gratitude and excitement about helping Miami's team to continue to grow and be successful. Messi was joined by his wife and three children at the event. It came a day after Inter-Miami announced that Messi signed a contract that will keep him with the club through 2025. Messi is set to make his debut on Friday in a League's Cup fixture against Mexico's Cruz Azul. And staying in Florida, where a suburban neighborhood's having to deal with a flurry of domestic rabbits, a growing group of the furry creatures is roaming the streets after they were illegally let loose by their breeder. Antides Costemines has more for us. This small community in Fort Lauderdale now has to deal with several dozen lionhead rabbits who have taken up residence in the neighborhood. One of the neighbors moved a couple of years ago and she just left her rabbits in the street when she moved. They were not spayed or neutered, so they started multiplying and now there's probably 50 or more rabbits in the neighborhood. But the rabbits are not really equipped for outside life. Their thick fur and fearless nature make them sensitive to the heat and vulnerable to predators. Moreover, despite their cuteness, they can be a nuisance. Well, every morning, I get, the first thing I do is get up and cover up the holes and chase them out of the backyard, too. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd like them. 
but uh, I just wish they would live somewhere else. Residents are now trying to raise money to rescue and rehome them. Local authorities have agreed to give the residents time to raise the over $20,000 needed, after initially saying the rabbits would have to be exterminated. Cost Jimenez, NTD News. Big impact there. Traditionally, recent college graduates and other young professionals have flocked to big cities like New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles for your work. But a recent bank rate survey indicates that other metro areas are drawing new talent now, largely due to low costs of living and strong year-over-year job growth. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the cities that are trending. Large cities on the east and west coast have always been popular destinations for young professionals. They traditionally offered the most job opportunities, and many young workers used to be willing to deal with high rent and cost of living. But a recent bank rate survey found that paradigm is shifting. Young professionals kind of opened their eyes to, oh, I can live in a city such as Austin or Nashville or even Raleigh, and the rent won't be as high there, and I can still have a really good job in my field. The pandemic is a significant factor. One result of the worldwide health crisis? Today's young professionals have different expectations compared to previous generations. They really value work-life balance, they value flexibility and the ability to uh, work in a hybrid situation or even remote, and that plays a huge role in where they're willing to relocate. The ability to work remotely has given young people and others the opportunity to choose where they live. Cities that used to dominate certain professions find themselves less of a draw. The narrative that you have to go to a big major city and try to make it is doesn't really exist anymore. Bankrate reports that Chicago took 37th place and Los Angeles took 40th. New York came in 43rd place. There's definitely an affordability crisis that's been going on uh, for a while now where, you know, rent has been skyrocketing. It's it's eased some, which is good, but it's definitely been elevated um, in the last few years. And so young professionals just feel like they're being squeezed out. Inflation, high cost of living, and rent have driven young workers toward more affordable cities. Many find they can get the same kind of job and maybe even a better one in addition to a better quality of life. These cities took the top spots. So we see cities like Austin, Seattle, and Salt Lake City have very low unemployment rates. They're also adding a lot of jobs year over year, and they're also seeing uh, wage growth increase year over year as well. And they have really strong economies. Bankrate used GDP per capita, year over year job growth, cost of living, quality of life, and several other factors to determine its top 50 rankings. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, a couple from Wisconsin turn a school project into a successful venture and give a boost to their local community. Stay with us to find out more. It's good to have you back with us. A Wisconsin couple has turned a school history project into a thriving business. They're producing and selling maple syrup. Let's take a look. What turned out as a school project ended up becoming a lucrative business idea. Andy and Marilyn Humphrey from Wisconsin started their venture selling maple syrup around 10 years ago. So in the maple syrup, we do uh, maple infusions, regular maple syrup, 
uh, with the company that we just bought, we do Cripple Creek Pancake Mix, and that's what's right behind us right there. That's one of our new items that uh, we're going to try to scale. Uh, we have the opportunity to get us some pretty large grocery chains with that pancake mix. It's made with uh, maple sugar, which makes it a little different than your standard pancake mixes. It all started when Andy found some old maple syrup tapping spouts in his family's junk drawer when he was in fifth grade. I didn't know what they were and I asked my folks about them, like, what are these things? What do you use them for? And they're like, well, it happened to be that time of year is the spring of the year. That's the only time that you can make maple syrup in our age. It's about a six week window. So it has to be when it's coming out of winter time, it's got to freeze at night. It's got to freeze at night and be in the 40s to 50s during the day. It's got to get the trend going. If you don't have that trend going, the sap won't flow. Needing a topic for his Wisconsin state history project, Andy researched the maple syrup industry in his state. He tapped a few trees and collected the sap in the process. This soon led him to discover his passion for maple syrup. With his father helping him to get the business off the ground, Andy worked many long nights. Andy and Marilyn were high school sweethearts at the time. Marilyn soon got involved in the business. By 2016, their company had grown into a sizable business. Last year, they produced 5,000 gallons of syrup, bottling it under their own brand. They also sell to a wholesaler in Ohio, who in turn sells it to other well-known companies. The Humphreys venture is now thriving and has since become an important part of the local community. By building relationships and offering higher prices for the syrup of other producers in the area. In addition to selling maple syrup, the Humphreys now also sell the equipment needed for the machines. Doing so has allowed Andy and Marilyn to support economic growth and industry in their community. We always enjoy helping other people and, you know, giving is better than receiving. So whatever we can do to help our community out in whatever way we can, we'll absolutely do that. The couple has big plans to continue expanding their business. They are also hoping to help their neighbors discover the untapped maple syrup potential in their state. Those infusions sound really good. Well, that's all for today's program, and we'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.